What is up, Solo Cups? My name is John Solo, and you're listening to the Messed Up Origins Podcast, the show where I dive deep into folklore history and break down the weird, wild, and often disturbing original versions of your favorite myths and fairy tales. Today, we are talking about a little story called The Emperor's New Clothes. It was written by the legendary Hans Christian Andersen, author of classics like The Ugly Duckling, Princess and the Pea, and Thumbelina. But to my disappointment, it has absolutely no connections to the Emperor's new groove. It could. Yeah. Okay, but it really doesn't, nor is it related to Kronk's new groove or to the Emperor's new school, just in case you were wondering. That being said, it's a fantastic story about an emperor who's played for the fool that he is and humiliated in front of his entire kingdom. It also has a timeless moral that's applicable to many aspects of our society today. A moral that I believe will resonate with every single person listening to this. If you're a fan of folklore and mythology and want stories like this delivered to your device every week, make sure you sacrifice those five-star and follow buttons to the algorithm gods. Then prepare yourself for the messed up origins of the Emperor's New Clothes. Chapter 1. The Story so Anderson opens the Emperor's New Clothes by introducing us to the Emperor himself. He doesn't have a name, nor does his kingdom, but as tempting as it is to call him Cusco, I'm gonna fight the urge to avoid confusion. Instead, we're gonna call him Tony, and his kingdom, Tony-topia. Now I'm sad to say that Tony is not a very good leader. He pays no mind to strengthening his military or his relationship with his citizens. Literally all this dude cares about is wearing the most elegant and expensive attire possible and the only reason he'd ever make public appearances was to show it off. Then one day, two swindlers who knew about the emperor's unhealthy obsession came into town with the intention of taking advantage. They approach his majesty and claim that they could weave a cloth so fine that it'd be invisible to anyone who was unfit for their job or hopelessly stupid. Plot twist though, the oh-so-talented weavers are trying to pull one over on your boy who just gobbles up every bit of their BS. Without asking for references or even a single example of something they'd woven before, he just gives them a big stack of money along with the most delicate silk and finest gold thread the kingdom has to offer so they can get to work right away. Little does he know, they're not even using the materials he's giving them. Instead, they just shove it all into their bags before going back to work on nothing at all. A few days go by and Emperor Tony is getting curious about how much progress the weavers have made, but he's a little too nervous to check on them himself. After all, if he goes to visit them and it turns out he can't see the cloth, it either means he's unfit to rule or hopelessly stupid. The funny thing is we, the audience, already know both to be true. Instead of going himself, Tony sends his trusted prime minister because he's always shown himself to be an intelligent man who's good at his job. But lo and behold, when the PM goes to the weaver's workshop, he sees them working tirelessly at the loom and starts to tweak because he can't see the fabric. Obviously, he can't tell Tony about this because it means he's unfit for office, right? So get this, he lies and says it's chef's kiss. Meanwhile, the weavers who see that no one is catching on to their literal charade, keep on asking for the finest of silks, even more golden thread, and of course, more payment. Then a few days later, Tony sends another servant over to check on him, and of course he can't see the cloth either, but he also lies about it and says it's exquisite. So at this point, the pressure is really on Tony to just grow some cojones and check out the weaver's work himself. His servants are all talking about how gorgeous it is, rumors about its magical properties have spread throughout the kingdom, he can't put it off any longer. The problem is he's still feeling insecure about whether or not he's a big fat idiot, so he invites his entourage to check out the loom along with him. During their visit, the swindlers did a very convincing job of fake weaving, and Tony's entourage did an even better job pretending they could see what was being weaved. 
So guess what? Even though Tony didn't see a single thread of fabric on that loom, he pretended it was the most stunning piece of cloth he had ever laid eyes on. Then one of his very helpful servants suggested that Tony wear these fresh fly threads while marching in the grand parade that was scheduled in just a few days. And because your boy couldn't be called out on his bluff, he agreed. So when the day finally comes and it's time for your highness to get dressed, the weavers put on this big show of delicately cutting the fabric and delicately sewing pieces together. Then they slowly raised up his trousers and slowly pulled the shirt over his head. But even after he put on the coat and all, the emperor didn't feel like he was wearing anything. He felt totally naked, but the weaver said that was because the fabric was as light as spider webs. Man, people got away with so much more before you could just Google shit. Is there really fabric that's lighter than spider webs? Interesting. Cut off their heads. Sadly, the emperor couldn't Google anything. He couldn't even ask Jeeves for some insight. So he had the servants attach a train to his jacket and marched right out the palace gates in front of a crowd of his cheering citizens. And what's really funny about this is no one reacted to him being naked. Since they all knew that not being able to see his outfit meant they were stupid, they all pretended to fawn over the masterful handiwork of the artisans, saying things like, those are the sickest fits he's ever worn and check out the drip on this guy. But in the midst of all their cheering, a tiny child's voice cries out, but the emperor isn't wearing anything. And in that instant, the illusion is shattered. There's something about the innocence of the child and his lack of something to lose that tears down the public self-imposed blinders and they realize, wait, it's not just me. The emperor really isn't wearing any clothes. Of course, the emperor realized that at the exact same time everyone else did, but he couldn't let himself be psyched out. He stood up even straighter than before, vertically, not horizontally, and finished the parade with his head held high. This one, I mean. As for the swindlers, they skipped town during the parade and were never heard from again. And that is what I love about fairy tales. Sometimes the bad guys get to win. Chapter two, origins. So now you know the story of the emperor's new clothes in its entirety. I know you've been waiting a long time for this day to come and I'm beyond excited to be part of the special occasion. But there's more to this story than just the story. Just like the other Anderson fairy tales we've talked about in the past, there's some analysis to be done and a fascinating history to uncover. For example, you might be surprised to hear this, but the plot of the emperor's new clothes is not an Anderson original. He was actually inspired by a Spanish story written back in 1337, almost exactly 500 years prior to his own publication called What Happened to a King with the Rogues Who Wove the Cloth. People used to really blow at coming up with titles, huh? This story was included in a collection called Tales of Count Lucanor by a guy named Don Juan Manuel. It contained 51 cautionary tales and was released in 1337. And just like the other collections we've looked at over the years, whether it be 1001 Arabian Nights or Sinbad or the Pentamarone, it contains an overarching frame story through which the other tales are being told. Prior to starting each tale, a character called Count Lucanor asks a servant Petronio a question and gives him a problem to Solve. Petronio then tells a story with a similar problem, and from its conclusion, he figures out the solution. Now, when it comes to what happened to a king with the rogues who wove the cloth, for the most part, the plot is pretty similar with the disparity stemming from the differences in cultures and the time period it was written in. In the Spanish version, three weavers, not two, somehow convince the royal court that only legitimate sons can see the cloth they weave. And unlike the swindlers in Anderson's story, the deception that these Spanish weavers are engaging in could have truly disastrous consequences. The king isn't just 
just nervous that he'll look stupid or people will think he's unfit for office because Spanish courts only allowed legitimate sons to inherit thrones and land. That means if the king is proven to be an illegitimate son, he would lose his throne and either be executed for his lies or exiled from his kingdom. So throughout the entire story, the main character is terrified about people finding out he can't see the cloth, but what he doesn't realize is that nobody else can either. It isn't until the end of the tale when a poor stable boy who isn't at risk of losing an inheritance exposes the lies in front of the court by pointing out he isn't wearing anything at all. And when it comes to the moral that Petronio takes out of the tale, it's a reminder to the rich and powerful that their social inferiors are watching and not as powerless as they might seem. Now, Anderson didn't actually read this version of the story, rather a German translation of it, but if you know anything about his personal life, you know that's a moral that would resonate with him. And for those who aren't familiar with his personal life, I'll tell you exactly why that is. Chapter 3 Analysis while Hans Christian Andersen may have grown up to be a world-famous author whose stories influenced the minds of adults and kids alike, he did not have a good childhood. He was financially destitute, he lost his father, who inspired his love of reading around the age of 12, and was bullied by other kids for his awkward appearance and atypical interests in the arts. Then, when he was finally lucky enough to attend specialty schools based on his interests, both the students and faculty gave him shit for growing up poor and not belonging in their social circles. Anderson grew up with feelings of loneliness and insecurity that followed him throughout his adult life, and things didn't even get better after he finally answered what he felt was his calling and began to write children's stories. As we've talked about many times on this channel before, the first two installments of his first collection, Fairy Tales Told for Children, were torn apart by critics who chastised him for not following the typical fairy tale format. Because God forbid you try something new, right? In fact, the criticism shook Anderson so much that he almost quit writing children's stories entirely. Those first two installments were published within six months of each other, and he held on to the third one for over a year before letting it go to print, a decision we'll talk more about in just a minute. The reason this is all relevant is it led to Anderson both resenting and envying the authority figures around him. Whether it was teachers or critics, the people who were supposedly most qualified in the subjects he was passionate about told him he didn't have what it takes. And while he was in no position to directly question their authority, he could do so through his writing. For example, Princess and the Pea was written as a parody of the oversensitivity of the aristocracy and their inability to tolerate things they didn't like or that made them uncomfortable. As for the emperor's new clothes though, that was to shine some light on the consequences of collective hypocrisy and the royal family's vanity. See, in addition to his bad experiences with the upper social strata, Anderson was born just after the French Revolution, which in part was caused by the reckless spending of King Louis XVI. Despite heavily taxing its citizens, the kingdom was on the brink of bankruptcy and those in power refused to do anything about it. So the people they ruled over did something about it. However, despite new rulers being put in place and new legislation being introduced, even in Anderson's home country of Denmark, which was largely unaffected by the French Revolution, the same problems seemed to continue with the ruling class neglecting their responsibilities in favor of focusing on their vanity. He just couldn't wrap his head around how all these same problems could continue in spite of all the death and destruction that occurred over the decade before he was born and the fact that no one was talking about it. As a result of all this, his personal experience with the privileged being bullied for how he looked, combined with his knowledge of the turmoil that nearby kingdoms had just gone through, he considered vanity to be
be the cardinal sin of human nature. So he made an example out of Emperor Tony by making his vanity the direct cause of his embarrassing himself in front of all of his subjects, just like the real royal families had done. Some folklorists even go so far as to say the kid who points out that the emperor is naked is supposed to be Anderson himself. And there's good reason to believe that. Because while he spent his early years living in poverty and being judged by the upper class, he started to affiliate with them more during that year-long hiatus he took where he had held off on releasing the third installment of his collection. During that break is when the people who really mattered, children and their parents, started to fall in love with his stories, and this made him quite the celebrity. Because of his new social status, he had finally become part of the upper class like he always dreamed of. Unfortunately though, it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Anderson just couldn't help but feel like he didn't belong with those people. The self-obsessed, materialistic, vapid bourgeois and the emperor's new clothes became his expose of their hypocrisy and snobbery. And what's especially crazy is that wasn't even the original ending. When Anderson sent what was supposed to be the final draft to the printers, it ended with the emperor marching naked in front of the crowd and that's it. No one calling him out, no veil being lifted. But for reasons we can only theorize about, he was motivated to change the ending to the one we know today. Which is crazy when you really think about it because if the emperor didn't get called out and embarrassed in front of everybody, the story would be so much less impactful. But since he did, that kid's one line takes on so much meaning and as a result has gone on to become an idiom that people use to this day when shaming people who choose to ignore what's in plain sight and blindly act as if there's nothing wrong. For example, folks who refuse to wear masks when going out in public. From my personal experience, they tend to act like if they just believe the virus isn't real, they're not gonna get it. But if that example's a little too sensitive for some of you, here's another. People who engage in call out and cancel culture every time a celebrity does something they don't approve of. Just like how the emperor's servants wanted to prove they weren't stupid, there's people on Twitter wanting to prove how good they are by sending the most toxic messages they can to anyone who takes a social misstep. The only difference in that situation is that anyone who takes on the role of the child and calls out their shenanigans gets their head cut off, including me for this segment. I guarantee people are closing out this video and dropping dislikes because I dared to point out that the emperor is not wearing clothes. That's okay though, a difference in opinion doesn't have to be a life or death thing. Thank you all for tuning in to the Messed Up Origins podcast. We're posting episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So don't forget to sacrifice the five-star and follow buttons to the algorithm gods to make sure they bless your feed with more mythological and folklore content. If you have any thoughts on this episode you'd like to share, like if you really enjoyed it or are dying to correct my pronunciation of something, hit me up under the Messed Up Origins handles on Twitter and Instagram. And to those who are craving more Messed Up Origins, feel free to check out other episodes episodes of the podcast or look up my YouTube channel called John Solo to experience the original episodes complete with visual aids and custom made artwork. Until next time, Solo fam, my name is John Solo and don't forget, John shot first.